Welcome to the Box Office Bears Movie Podcast. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm your host, Jacob Burnsberger. And I am his co-host, Nick Shawley. I love your name for this week. <laughs> Just Mr. White. Just Mr. White. <laughs> that begs the question, who would I be? You would be... Uh... I don't know. You'd be Miss uh, Mr. Brown or Mr. Blue. Wow, that's kind of... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm kind of offended by that. So, we'll give you Mr. Pink since you escape. I'll, I'll, I'll gladly be Mr. Pink. <laughs> oh, wait, that means you die then. <laughs> and you're the only one that survives. Oh, that is true. Oh. Well, you know what? I, never mind. I'll be... I'll, I'll be Mr. Brown or Mr. Blue because I, I'll go down fighting with you. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, no, you could be K Billy. Be K Billy. Okay. I, 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 I think I'll be fine with that. K Billy just holds this movie together and he survives too. So, <laughs> all right, everyone. So, if you don't know what we're talking about at this point, we are doing a movie re- review on Quentin Tarantino's very first movie. Reservoir Dogs. Imagine this being your first movie. Oh my god, if this was my first movie, I would I would be blown away. Imagine like this: you are this new director, and you make this movie. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it, just a lot of the stuff around it, a lot of the controversy at that at that time. I don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah, so what's um, I, Jacob? You have said before that this is one of your favorite movies, correct? Yes, on my on my list, I have like all, all the movies I rated out of ten, and at one point before twenty twenty three, Reservoir Dogs was in my top ten list, and it is bumped down to number fifteen, which it which isn't terrible. <laughs> It, it's still a very good movie. It's one of my favorite movies. Like, don't get me wrong. I've just been exposed to a lot of other different movies since then. And, yeah. And the first time I watched this movie was like back whenever I was in college. Is that the first time you saw this movie? Yeah. Like, I, I really, I, I vividly remember watching this movie on Netflix at home, like, on a weekend whenever I was back from college and I remember watching this and I'm like, Oh my God, this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> I, yeah. So I first saw this movie when I think I was 13, 12 or 13, I think. Um, and I went through like this whole Quentin Tarantino phase where I was like obsessed with Kill Bill and um, I, yeah, I saw this movie and I didn't get it at first. The first time I saw it, I did not get it at all. I only made it like half an hour in and I was so bored. I didn't understand it. Like, I just didn't get it. Um, Then I rewatched it and I watched it the full way through and I was like, holy, like, this is an amazing movie. Now, I feel like if you watch these kind of movies, like, past like 16 years old when you're like more familiar with it opposed to like 
for your instance, like you watch it whenever you were 13 and like you didn't really get it too much because you didn't know like all around it and like the whole story and like specific details about it. Whereas like right now, I mean, you would think this is like the greatest movie you've ever seen because there's just so much detail behind it. Exactly. Like I watched it earlier and I ha- I can't tell you the last time I watched this movie. Probably I would say within like the last few years I have seen it. I've watched it. Um, but like I-, I always knew that I liked this movie. Like I always knew that I really enjoyed it. But like today when I was watching it, it just solidified it. Like how much I like this movie. I was so excited and I was so ready to rewatch this movie because like, I, I know like I, these are, it's one of those movies where you like rewatch it. I'm like, okay, this happens and this happens. And I'm, I'm so excited for this movie, this part of the movie that happened. Like there's just so much towards it. And this movie is a great example of, you don't need a lot of action happening around a movie. It's just, all built up towards the dialogue and the script for this movie is just so strong. And like pretty much throughout the movie, there's like only a few characters too. Like there's a limited cast and we'll kind of get into that in a little bit, like why there is such like a limit on this movie, like being that it was on such a low budget. Um, But it, it just there's something so magical about like the storytelling and just the the limit of characters but like just the non-linear storytelling as well like how you know we we start off in the diner and then we kind of jump to the famous scene of you know them walking across the street with little green bag playing in the background like and then like we jump to the you know the funeral home which is like this warehouse you know like it's just it all a majority of the movie takes place at this warehouse and it's like there's something that i feel like a lot of other movies that would try this they would you know end up being so boring but this like just with the dialogue and just how like the it kind of jumps back and forth with flashbacks and you know non-linear storytelling like it just works there's something about it like you can't describe it just works the majority of this movie is just taking place during this one setting and like i mentioned like the dialogue really brings it on to where it is like right now and i'm just gonna say it this movie has one of the best opening scenes that i've ever seen (laughs) and it's it's all dialogue driven too and one of the best like title sequences too while little green bag is playing in the background and everyone's being introduced yeah Okay, what's how do you feel about Quentin Tarantino, Jacob? Okay, I know the whole controversy that he has around him on being a director that's more towards like the violent aspect. He's not afraid on like using certain words that no one would use now. And of course, (laughs) like they'll be canceled at this point if they ever use these words. I mean, Given it was a different time back then, I mean, this movie did come out in what, like, it came out in 1992. Obviously, obviously we're getting at that point where, like, certain words that are being used throughout this movie is still not okay, but (sighs) he makes good movies. I mean, he really, he really makes good movies, even though he uses the whole violence aspect and, like, 
the topics that he covers are very controversial. Like, like this movie basically is depicting like cops more as like pigs and kind of like the weaklings or like the Django Unchanged is all about like racism and uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is about like the whole hippie aspect and uh, Charles Manson and Pulp Fiction more along the lines. I mean, it's about drugs. I mean, <laughs> Pulp Fiction is just about so much. Pulp Fiction was actually the first uh, Quentin Tarantino movie I've ever seen, and I I thought it was really good. Yeah, I that I always had a love hate relationship with Quentin Tarantino, not because of like the violence, and you know that's why I liked his movies was because of like just the you know the gore and the action and like the you know just you know all the things that a Quentin Tarantino movie is about. Like that's what I really love. I just. I don't know. There's just something that I, I don't know. I don't like about Quentin Tarantino. I don't know what it is, but like, I just, I love his movies. There's something about his movies that I just really like, um, you know, in watching this movie, like I watched a few interviews with him when he was really, really young and he had just made this movie. And, you know, it was, it's kind of like an Orson Welles type thing with Citizen Kane, where it's like, imagine this being your first movie. Like, you know, and just with the lack of budget and, you know, the lack of resources, but making a movie that would spark like independent filmmaking and, you know, be, you know, one of the greatest independent movies of all time. You know, it's just something that's like you have to have some kind of talent to do that. So, like, in, in that regard, I really like Quentin Tarantino. It's just there's something I don't know. Like, I just I feel like if I would ever want to become a director, like I would use a lot of these tropes, but like, I feel like a lot of it's been done by Tarantino. So it's like, I don't know. It's like, why well, I want to become something if all this stuff, you know, if you're just kind of mimicking that style, but like Quentin Tarantino really is like, he's very honest. Like, he's like, yeah, I stole this from here and I stole this from there. And, you know, kind of like the Picasso line, like great artists steal, you know, like he, does that you know and that's i love what quentin tarantino steals from like his i have so many similar tastes as quentin tarantino and that's what really got me into his work was like oh wow like quentin tarantino likes this movie and you know likes that movie and i was like okay let let me try his movies but i had seen pulp fiction heavily edited on amc and like i was like oh my gosh this is so this is like nothing I've seen before. And, you know, you still watch Pulp Fiction and it's like still blows your mind. I'm glad you brought up the factor that he's so honest about, like stealing certain things that kind of bring towards his movies, because around Reservoir Dogs, he stole a section of the movie from a beloved film from Hong Kong. Yes. And I think it was the I don't know if it was the ending of reservoir dogs or it was the ending of the hong kong movie i think it was the it was the ending of the hong kong movie that he stole that he kind of blossomed into something else throughout reservoir dogs exactly yeah it, it's which we'll get into but like the whole scene where like um uh 
what's his name? Hold on. I, I just still get so confused on like who's who. And like just, just with the uh Mr. Orange and Mr. White are like trying to get the trying to steal the car and Mr. Orange get shot. Like that's yeah. like the scene that he kind of rips off during that. Um but like he uniquely makes it his own, you know. I don't I don't know. There's just a lot. I'm granted, I mean, I I know Quentin Tar- Tarantino from like memes and stuff too. Like I know he has throughout like his whole film career, he does have like feet shots throughout them and he, he kind I don't know for sure if he has like a foot fetish or not. I don't, I don't know if that's ever been disclaimed before. I mean, I kind of do agree with you. Like on a director aspect, I totally respect him on like how he kind of does his whole career in a sense. But if you're just like walking upon him upon the street or if you're like having a conversation or if you want to be his friend or whatever, I kind of feel like you would kind of, be an asshole in a sense quentin tarantino now yeah especially now but like i was watching interviews with him like after this movie came out and i would have loved to have been his friend because i would have loved to just watch movies with him and like talk about like all these old movies that he watched and like you know like just share that love of movies but like now i don't know like this style has been worked over and like mimicked and like kind of transformed by so many other filmmakers that have come out since 1992 which there are so many that have kind of replicated this style so it's not you know i don't know i mean he's definitely new unique about his style of filmmaking like he he's more He's not afraid to really get a point across, especially when it comes to like controversial topics. Yeah. Exactly. Like like especially like with Inglorious Bastards, like how he introduced like the whole uh killing Nazis aspect and like I, like how I mentioned like pulp fiction with drugs or the Django or Django Unchained about like racism and hateful aid is like introducing like some abuse that kind of goes on there and kind of leading towards back to the racism thing. And then once upon a time in Hollywood is about the hippies. I'm really curious because his newer film that's going to be out is his last film. I'm really curious on like how it's going to cover that. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I always look forward to a Quentin Tarantino movie because like, it's so unique and he's only had, what maybe like 12 movies i think no he i think he always envisioned on making 10 movies total so this would be his 10th one i always forget about jackie brown i always forget about jackie brown's probably one of my least favorite tarantino movies and actually one of the other ones that i saw one of my first tarantino movies was death proof i've never seen I th- I think I haven't seen it like a, a a good amount of some of Tarantino's films. I, I mean, I kind of watched a little bit of Kill Bill. Mm, I love Kill Bill. I, I it's probably one of my uh, volume two though. Like volume two is probably one of like his least liked movies. But like I just love. There's so many references references in it that he steals from other movies. But like I just 
I love it. Like, there's just something about Kill Bill too. Like, just the artistry and like just the storytelling. I just love about. But the first one is, of course, really, really amazing too. I wouldn't mind diving back into it just to kind of. Oh please. Yeah, I, I would definitely give it another chance because at the moment I really didn't get into it too much, and I haven't seen Jackie Brown. I haven't seen Death Proof. I have seen The Hateful Eight. I've seen Django. I've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, I keep confusing From Dust Till Dawn because he didn't direct that movie, but I think he wrote in that movie and he starred in it too. He did, yeah. Well, so, well, so just giving like our audience like a little preface, like Quentin Tarantino is not only a director, but he really started off like screenplay writing and like writing these really outlandish screenplays. Uh, Natural Born Killers was another one. True Romance was another one. And uh, From Dusk Till Dawn were all like screenplays that he wrote. Um, but From Dusk Till Dawn, he starred in as well, um, which that was actually an early Tarantino movie that I watched, too, was From Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, I haven't. That's another movie that, that I would like to see, too. I've I've only heard good things about it like i i, I haven't heard it's any good. like negative things around it it's good like it's yeah it, it's i haven't watched it since i was in like 10th grade so yeah um but yeah i i recently saw like once upon a time in hollywood too and i loved once upon a time in hollywood it was so 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 good um another one um death proof is I have mixed emotions on Death Proof. I love old car movies. Like, I grew up, my dad, like, was always watching car movies. Vanishing Point and Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry and um, uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. So, like, a lot of that comes into Death Proof, which I I love that. It's just a bit of a snooze fest. Like, it is, like, just, like, 90% of it is just all dialogue. And then there's like a 30 minute car chase scene at the end, which is amazing. But like, that's, that, that's like what kind of got me into it. But, um, but yeah, and of course, Kurt Russell's in it too. So, you know, I really like him working with Kurt Russell. Um, so yeah, it's death proof is like the, the second half of planet terror, which is grouped into like grindhouse movies. Um, like the, it's under the grindhouse title. So it was like a double feature, like grind jumping back, like, Cannibal Holocaust was a perfect example of a grindhouse movie. Like it's gritty. It was like played at this played at these like junky little theaters known as grindhouses. And that's like what grindhouse the movie is actually playing homage to is that, you know. So th that's what I said. Like a lot of these movies that Tarantino references, I just really love. I never knew that Kurt Russell was in Death Proof. He is. Yes, he, he is. Yeah. Um it's i would he's a stunt man and like it's a good watch if you're like trying to you know really really enjoy the tarantino canon and all that but i don't think it's essential to you know i don't know like i don't know a lot of people that would cite that as their favorite tarantino movie understandable i mean i haven't really heard too much about it either so i mean he does have a good track record of other films besides that too just just like looking through his his filmography like i really want to re re-watch like a lot of these like i haven't seen 
I can't tell you the last time I've watched Pulp Fiction the full way through or Inglorious Bastards. Like, I, I really like Inglorious Bastards. Like, I really, really like that movie. Oh, yeah. Christoph Waltz really carries that movie. Yeah. So, another one that I thought, because I love spaghetti westerns, and that's something, of course, that Tarantino shares his love. I share his love for, uh, you know, Sergio Leone movies, Sergio, Sergio Corbucci movies, like like Django, the original Django, you know, Tarantino takes a lot and we'll see how he, uh, he kind of blends some of these scenes as we'll see in Reservoir Dogs from these movies, you know, Django with the, the whole torture scene of the cop, you know, that comes from the original Django. Um, but, you know, just the spaghetti Western influences and just how Tarantino movies are just such an amalgamation, a fusion of so, so much. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, he, his work is just amazing. I'm just going to say it. Like his first movie is, is really sets him on the map of great filmmakers and just, really great films yes exactly yeah and of course Django Unchained is amazing I like I said I can't tell you the last time that I watched Django Unchained but it is it's so good Hateful Eight that's the one that I was kind of talking about I couldn't get through it like I started it but I don't know if I was just not in the right space because it's long it's a longer one and there's of course a lot of dialogue in it and it's not really like you know, it's it's a popular Tarantino movie, but it's not always the one that like is go a uh, go to Tarantino movie. But like, that's something that I do want to watch now and like kind of re revisit because it, it takes a lot from the Great Silence, which was a spaghetti western movie back in the nineteen sixties, um, and you know, just the snowy western scene. Like, I just love that. I love spaghetti westerns, but that's for another. But yeah, it is. It is a good movie. I do agree with you that it is a little bit longer and I will say there what there are some parts that could have been avoided and kind of like trimmed down in a sense and there's even an extended version about this too and that that that's that really kind of puts you over the edge on like oh do I really want to sit through more of this yeah exactly yeah and you know I I feel like we can't neglect like Tarantino and like you know the relationship with him and Harvey Weinstein either like you know how Weinstein basically produced a lot of these movies um you know through Miramax and through you know the Weinstein company and but you know that's a topic for another day you know but that's something that you know I, I don't think you can neglect when you know you're talking about Tarantino and that you know just the that how he has become you know an extension of Hollywood in a sense I, I I fully agree. And how do I put this? Like Tarantino has just been doing films since the early nineties and he's already made like such an impact throughout Hollywood and like, especially bringing on the same actors from the start of uh, Reservoir Dogs. Like you have Michael Madsen who's been in, some projects with him and yep. you have uh you have Tim Roth and you have Harvey Cattell and then uh you have Brad Pitt who's been in some stuff with him along with Leonardo DiCaprio and Uma Thurman and Samuel Jackson like 
he really knows how to reel these actors in on, on like a good screenplay. Yes. And just continues to work with them. I that that's something that I love about Tarantino is like like a lot of directors, specifically like Martin Scorsese, and you know, he has his regulars. And I love that because he always utilizes his regulars so well. Harvey Keitel being one of them. Like I Harvey Keitel is probably one of my favorite actors. Like, you know, he, and, you know, we'll kind of get to, you know, his, his role in this movie was more than just on screen. You know, he, he basically helped finance this movie um, and helped bring this movie to life. But, um, you know, Keitel had always been kind of putting a lot of trust, his whole career, a lot of trust into these young independent filmmakers that have become household names today. Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, like Keitel was with Martin Scorsese in like the late 60s when when Scorsese was still a film student. Like, you know, he's been a regular with him since then. You know, he's been in Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and Passion. Um, uh, Last Temptation of Christ and The Irishman, the Martin Scorsese, one of Martin Scorsese's newest movies. Like, so Keitel has always been putting a lot of, you know, emphasis on, you know, helping these young directors and, you know, helping start the careers of Quentin Tarantino. And another one is Ridley Scott. He was in Ridley, one of Ridley Scott's first movie, The Duelist. Like, it, it's just like looking back at Keitel's career, like it's been, you know, ebbing and flowing. But Reservoir Dogs was really a, a saving moment for Keitel and, you know, him putting a lot of a lot on the line to make help Tarantino make this movie. He is more of like the fatherly figure throughout this movie. Yeah. Like he Mis- like he he really cares about certain group members and he really has like his he really has his hatred towards others. Uh yeah, Mr. White like I just I love Harvey Keitel like it just I really really like him. Um but yeah, and that's the thing, like every actor in this movie just plays their role. Steve Buscemi is amazing as Mr. Pink. Like, and we'll get into kind of like what we think, like each, I don't want to say this movie has like any deep, profound meaning towards it. You know, it, it's a Tarantino movie with violence. You know, it, it's all about the mood and the atmosphere, you know, but it's not really about like deep philosophical stuff, like some of the other movies we've watched and, you know, that we've talked about on here, but it, it's, it, it's definitely a commentary on crime and, you know, but how each character kind of is an archetype of, you know, a criminal, how there's, you know, the professional criminal and how there's the psychopath, you know, and we'll get to that, you know, how there's, you know, the, the kind of first time, first time offender, you know, like all these archetypes of, you know, the, these criminals are really played out in this movie through the individual characters. I, I, I just, there's not a bad scene throughout any of the actors in this movie there's, and another, another thing i realized like there's no dialogue from any like women either like when you have that woman in the car shooting mr orange like she doesn't speak like whatsoever or like anyone uh like joe's secretary or or something like it's just all male actors yeah and it's really male driven and I don't know. Like, I never really noticed it at first until I 
like dug into it more and like really analyzed it more like there's there's no women in this movie <laughs> exactly yeah there's you know it, it's that in i mean a woman plays a huge huge role in because you know she kills um miss uh mr orange but like you know there exactly there's no like really speaking role women in the you know characters in this movie which you know take that for what you will you know it, it's just yeah I mean, granted, it did change more. Like, obviously, Pulp Fiction has a a very notable female character in the in the movie, and obviously that evolved throughout time, throughout Quentin Tarantino's movies. But Reservoir Dogs really shows like you don't need a lot of action. You don't need like car chases or a lot of like gunfights or any of this like you really have to pay attention to the dialogue throughout this movie because it really adds towards more the details on what happens throughout the movie it really adds like all the characters backstories and all the um like how they got into crime and how they got into like working with joe and everything and uh-huh. it really it really gives message not re- like you mentioned like not clear messages like it don't get any like positive feedback throughout this movie because it is a crime thriller. I mean, obviously you're not going (laughs) to, you're not going to adopt any of these traits from these characters. Like it's just a good, I guess a good thing in this movie is kind of like, don't be like these characters. (laughs) Well, I guess the one thing that I get from this, and of course we'll explore this more, but like how, each character there's like not black or white there's a lot of gray with these characters like they're not they're not bad guys you know they're not really bad guys even though you know the things that they do are you know pretty harsh it's just they're not they you know we each see like their strengths come out like especially with Mr. White you know caring for Mr. Orange throughout the whole movie until you know the very very last scene and you know just how like Michael Marston said that his uh Mr. uh Blonde was not that bad of a guy like he always portrayed him as this upstanding guy which you know <laughs> is kind of a hot take but yeah now, kind of going with Mr. Blonde, I've, the whole controversy around this movie is just about like how he tortures that cop. And I really feel like most of the controversy is kind of, it's kind of similar to how in Cannibal Holocaust, like everyone thought that the a- actors and actresses actually died in that movie. Whereas in Reservoir Dogs, we actually believe that the, the cop's ear was cut and was like cut off and like he's being tortured in real life or in all reality it's just all like prosthetics and makeup and all that like nothing really happened but it just looks so real exactly yeah and that was like you said jacob like that was a a pivotal moment in this movie because that is kind of what this movie is notorious for is that scene um and that was you know the first time i watched this movie that was the scene the full way through that was the first scene that i was like oh wow like this is this is something you know and that's when the movie really really i think turns a lot and you know it really really picks up um 
so yeah but that's probably the most famous scene and you know just this movie had so much censorship around it and you know it, it really was the a foundational moment for Tarantino not only being his first movie but you know it, it's really the tropes that a lot of Tarantino movies feature is you know this intense bloody violence and gore and you know these really profound effects you know yeah I, I fully agree and obviously this movie came out in the 90s and there there wasn't any CGI there wasn't anything like that like obviously there like like I mentioned, like it's just all dialogue driven. M- most of it really is. I mean, obviously, you have some moments here and there where you have some some gunfights and you have some tension throughout the movie. But it's another example. Like when you look at a newer movie and you look at this, you generally want to go towards the older movie. Ah, <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just so. It's such a solid movie. And I feel like we're kind of exposed to newer stuff more now today opposed to like what things were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's a really good video that I watched on this um, by, I think it's nerd writer and you know why I forget the exact title, but why, you know um, reservoir dog stands the test of time and just how timeless it is because it's like, it's like looking back, this movie is, Oh, what over 30 years old and it's like still so fresh it's like still something that is just so like you know even like tarantino like you know of of course with all his movies but like it's like just that power of this movie just it 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 has so much power to it and you know you could watch it in any decade and it will still be you know fresh oh yeah definitely all right, so do we want to touch upon the the plot? <laughs> yes, we can. So, All right. Yeah, th- this movie is, like we said before uh, last week, it's a shorter movie, so um, you know, w- w- it won't take us too, too long to get through the, the plot, but, you know, just with the storytelling, it's going to be, you know, definitely something to listen up with. Oh, yeah, it's it's an hour and 39 minutes, so it's roughly around the same time as, like, an animated movie. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, okay, cool. So, uh, we start off in um, a diner of all places. So, we start off in a little diner with these really, really cool, like, camera rotation effects where, like, it's panning around this table and, you know, the... the this dialogue of these guys, which we don't really know. We just see them dressed up. We see them talking to each other. So we don't know if they're kind of businessmen or what, but they're talking about of all things, Madonna's like a virgin. Yeah. there. And uh, <laughs> one thing I found interesting was uh, the guy who played nice guy, Eddie, Chris Penn, he... <laughs> Chris Penn at the time, uh, his brother Sean Penn was married to Madonna, so that whole conversation. I mean, nice guy Eddie's character is basically dialogue driven, and he is re- a real like chatterbox throughout this movie. But yes. in real life, Chris Penn didn't want to say anything about the conversation about like Madonna and everything because his brother, <laughs> he, Chris Penn, was brothers brother in law with Madonna. Exactly, and like. 
just the whole discussion around these guys just talking about what like a virgin means and you know quentin tarantino is of course you know he's starring in this movie too and he's it's mainly his lines of you know how madonna is you know enjoys this you know sexual experience and you know how there's pain and pleasure and all you know all this stuff you know we won't get into that but like I guess Quentin Tarantino later met with Madonna, like as he, you know, grew to stardom and everything. And, you know, I guess she was like, no, that's not what this song is about at all. You know, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Like, like Quentin Tarantino's character about this movie is Mr. Brown. And Mr. Brown is talking about like how Madonna, like, like a virgin is like, just a, like a bunch of dicks. Yeah. And as, Mr. Brown's talking. We have Joe, who is like the the leader throughout this whole group. He has this address book that he that he found recently, and he's like reading this. <laughs> he's trying to remember this name that he put down in this address book. Like he's like Toby. He's like Toby. He's like Toby. He's like Toby Wong. Toby. Toby Chang. Toby. Toby something. And like Mr. Mr. <laughs> Mr. White, who's played by Harvey Cattell is really like starting to get pissed about like this whole like conversation is like I got Madonna's dick in right ear and I got like the address book in another ear like I'm sick about this and he's like <laughs> Toby Toby Wong Toby it, 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 like these guys are just you know it, it, this conversation is really starting off with you know we're seeing these guys talk about these things but we're really seeing this kind of yuckiness of these guys, you know, because they're making all these, you know, Asian slurs about Asians and, you know, yeah. Yeah, and and Mr. White takes the the book and he's like, oh, you can have this after we're done like eating and everything. And, and Joe's like, oh, no, I want it back now. I'll, I'll get Mr. Blonde to shoot you or something. <laughs> um, Mr., um, not, uh, Joe is Lawrence Tierney, who plays Joe, actually has had like a prolific career, and he was in a lot of movies in the '40s and '50s, a lot of uh, noir film noir movies, you know, dark crime movies. Um, so this is like a really interesting role for him because it's almost like he is playing a character that you know is very comfortable for him. So yeah. And he's, of course, the boss, and he has his son, nice guy, Eddie, who is played by, like Jacob said, Chris Penn. Um, I didn't know Chris Penn died. I did not know that until I looked that up in, in 2006. Yep, he, he died all the way back in 2006, and I, I was really sad about that, too. Like, I, I, It made me wonder like what other roles he could have gotten if he was still alive. Like, He could have made m- more prolific roles throughout his career if he didn't pass so soon exactly and of course sean penn being you know the much more prolific actor and brother um but yeah and like i I know that chris penn was in footloose and i i forget like i think a few other movies um but you know this is really the movie that he's known for and man does he play a good role everybody in this movie plays such an amazing role as we mentioned before oh yeah definitely and uh, Joe Joe go, goes up and he, get, he gets the check like he said oh I'll cover this everyone else cover for the tip <laughs> and now we have another strong scene throughout this amazing opening where Mr. Pink who's played by Steve Buscemi is 
talking about his whole philosophy like I don't tip like that's just that's just not who I am and everyone around him at the at the table is trying to convince him like hey you really have to put in a buck to support these waitresses and everything and he's like oh you see this little violin I have in my finger right here it goes out to all the waitresses right now like if you, if you don't like your job and you think that you have shit pay or whatever then go find another job like I'm sorry that the government taxes your tips but I mean, hey, I have to worry about me. I don't have to worry about you. Like, I don't tip. And it's like, hey, that is like, I, Jacob, I always tip. And I know you always tip too. Like, that's just something that like, if you want to be nice and like an actual kind person, you you tip. You, you, and it's, but it's like, wow, that's really convincing. You know, what he's saying is like actually really convincing, but like, it's interesting because Mr. White, this is like when we really see Mr. White as somewhat of a compassionate character because he's like telling, you know, and not just Mr. White, but some of the other guys are trying to convince Mr. Pink that, hey, like this is how these girls make a livelihood. Like this is literally what is feeding them, what is feeding their families and, you know, is you you tipping. I 100% agree on what you're saying. Like, like I, I of course tip twenty percent or even like beyond that because I know that the smallest dollar really helps a person, especially throughout their whole lives, and even if they're trying to pursue their careers or the education or something. Like, although Mister Pink's argument is somewhat convincing, which I will agree with, you still have to be the better person. You still have to be a nice person and provide this support with the people that have served you your food or like, et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. But like I said before, this is like, you know, one of those scenes where we start seeing that these guys, you know, they are going to commit like something really evil, but there's this whole conversation around them being good people and tipping, you know, like, so, so that's what I meant. These characters aren't just black and white. Like they are such gray characters. And, Mr. Pink is like, oh, when I come down and sit at a diner, I want my coffee to, my coffee cup to be filled up like at least six times. But this waitress filled it up only three times. I'm like, who, the f- who drinks six cups of coffee? It's in the morning. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, you definitely start seeing into the morality of these guys before they even commit the crime. Like you. Like, you somewhat see, like, what sides they're really on on the spectrum. Like, how you mentioned, like, some are gray, some are, like, more on the white side, some are more on, like, the chaotic and black side. Like, it really depends on, like, how these characters make the decisions throughout this movie and, like, how their morals really justify them. Exactly, yeah. And and we will definitely get to that. Um because there's a lot of, you know, yeah, I didn't, I said this movie wasn't too philosophical, but it, it definitely, you know, comes into play with, you know, morality and, you know, what these characters do and how they're not simple characters. So, so yeah, we have this whole scene of the tipping and, you know, Joe comes back to the table and he's like, you know, he orders uh, Mr. Pink to pay, you know, the tip. So Mr. Pink, of course, abides and, you know, kind of throws a dollar in, um, and then we get the probably the most one of the most famous scenes from this movie where we start hearing Little Green Bag song. Little Green Bag by George 
Baker and each one of the characters are being introduced and they're all walking towards the car and then you see this beautiful yellow bolded uh, title screen come come down from the screen and all the way up to the middle and you see Reservoir Dogs. That's basically how it starts. And it just cuts to black and all you hear is this screaming from Mr. Orange in the back of the car. And you see him all like like this interior of the car is just all white and his blood is just everywhere at this point. Like the back of that car. What period? Yeah, like the, there, there's just so much blood around the car and. And Mr. Orange is panicking, like, oh, God, I can't believe she killed me. I got shot. I'm going to die. And Mr. White's driving the car. And uh, Mr. White's, like, really trying to assure him, like, hey, you're not going to die. You're going to be okay. I want you to repeat back to me, like, you're going to be okay and everything. And he repeats it back. And uh, Mr. White's – Mr. White is more of, like, the father figure throughout this movie towards Mr. Orange because – in all reality, yes. I mean, Mr. White's probably the one of the older ones of the group. And, like, Mr. Orange is just, like, a little kid at that point. I mean, obviously, he's not actually a little kid, but he's a kid around the group. And... Exactly. We ha- and then we, ha- we have... Uh, Extremely... Yeah, and we have uh, we have Mr. White and Mr. Orange going inside the, the warehouse, which is the majority of where this movie is taking place. And we have Mr. We have Mr. White on the ground and he's still bleeding and he's like really begging Mr. White, like, please take me to a hospital or something and Mr. White's trying to assure him, like, we can't do that. It'll upset Joe. Joe is coming, probably coming right now with a good doctor. And Mr. Orange is like, oh, please just let me go. You don't even, you, you can just drop me off at the door and I'll just walk by myself along, along the lines. And Mr. White's like, you got shot in the gut. And that's probably the one of the most painful areas that you can get shot from. But. It also takes the longest because you can probably die within like a couple of days from this if if not treated properly. Exactly, yeah. And <laughs> I I like how he mentions the orange like you gotta stop hitting your head on the ground, otherwise you're gonna you're gonna break the ground with your head. And uh Yeah. And then we have um, Orange is like kind of passing out from losing like too much blood. And then Pink enters and, he, and he, he's all pissed because he's worried about like uh, being set up and like he's really paranoid at that point. All right, we are back up. We were having. Yeah, we're sorry, everyone. There's a little slight delay on on both ends. But uh, 
what was the last point that you heard? Um, you said. Okay. Um, we have uh, Mr. Pink walking in, and he's all pissed, and he's being paranoid at this point. So, uh, played by uh, Steve Buscemi, he uh, comes in, really starts the story of kind of what happened, uh, which we don't really know that this is a uh, heist. Um, we don't fully know yet, you know, if this is happening. So, but Mr. Pink comes in and he is, um, of course, extremely um confused and agitated of what had of how this movie takes place in an old funeral home yeah like <laughs> now that you mention it like it was it's very uh how do I want how do I want to put this it's very kind of ironic especially like how it ends out and everything too exactly yeah so you know in um, so Steve Buscemi comes in and he starts yelling with Mr. White of, you know, what happened. And they start to theorize that this possibly. Yeah. How, you know, they start recalling the events of how the police got really quick. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're really trying to like go over, go over the details and pink is like too paranoid at this point. So they have to go into the other room while, Orange is kind of like passed out at this point, and uh, Pink really doesn't know who to really trust at this point. And he goes up, he goes over like, "Oh, Mister Blonde's like started killing people and everything. He even killed this little girl who was probably what not even like in her twenties or anything." And uh, Mister Brown got shot by a cop, and he's already dead. And uh, Pink is starting to like kind of go over like how he kind of escaped from the cops. So it kind of flashes back to him and pink is running with this suitcase in the middle of the, of the street. And like three of these cops are chasing him and he's tell they're telling people to like move over as they're trying to capture him. And pink gets hit by this car in the middle of the street and he, he steals the car and, uh, GTA style, like throws this lady. Yeah, it really did remind me of like a Grand Theft Auto situation. I mean, it technically yeah. is Grand Theft Auto since you're stealing a car. Yeah, legally, yeah. Throws this lady out of the car, and like you know, he he's driving through this cracked windshield. Like I read something about this this scene where they didn't have so the budget was so low it was you know a, a one million dollars I believe it was so it sounds like a lot but movie a lot of our viewers know it expensive incredibly expensive but, but like one million dollars is you know basic stuff so they were really doing minimal stuff like as diy as possible so they didn't have enough money to do like police escorts to like close off the city so they had to like wait for green lights to be able to like shoot this scene of like him like hurry rapidly turning like and uh, getting out of this like broken windshield 
exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I love that detail too. <laughs> so yeah, and, so uh, he ends up like back at the back at this like Ron. Yeah, we. He, he he goes he goes to the car. He shoots some cops, and he's on his way back to the to the warehouse. And uh, he's Pink is really trying to figure out like like there has to be a rat in the group. Like he's he's starting to accuse uh, he's starting to accuse Joe. He's starting to accuse Orange, and he's and he's starting to accuse White. And White becomes all defensive, like maybe like maybe you're the rat and pink's like okay now you got the right track of mind and everyone's trying to calm down and pink goes to the bathroom and now we have this uh this character origin from white now and it flashes back to like white and joe having a a conversation like white going white had this group back in alabama but uh he kind of wanted to settle down a little bit and some of his old crew members from Alabama started to like time caught up to them and they got caught and everything. And Joe starts to fill white in on the, the heist that they're going to do. And, uh, it really, it cuts back to reality where pink states that he, he stashed the diamond somewhere and, he wants to drive off and kind of forget about like the whole Joe situation since everything is such in turmoil right now. Yeah. And so now we have, they kind of get after this because like they, they kind of start getting really paranoid about, you know, whether to get medical. So they get in this altercation and then, Mr. Blanc shows up and oh, he not man. only shows up with some <laughs> iconic lines, he also shows up with a hostage. Yeah. And like white is really like hating Mr. Blonde at this point because white's wondering how Joe would hire such a, a maniac who would like, start shooting at the cops and like killing these people along the way. And, uh, white and blonde almost have like a little, little scuffle along the way. And, uh, they, they basically like calm down at this point, like pink intervenes and he's like, what am I the only professional around here? So blonde takes them outside and he sees a, a cop, a cop in the trunk. So we have the the cop, you know, the, the um, his name is uh, Marvin Nash. So you know, they they kind of bring him in and they tie him to a chair, and you know, he's just kind of there almost. And then we kind of jump back to another flashback where Blonde meets the Cabots. So Joe and uh, Nice Guy. So Blonde has an interesting backstory because Blonde has like he's probably one of the most um, I'd say seasoned out of this bunch because he's just getting fresh out of jail. Um, and you know, it, it, the reason he went to jail is for another job that he did for Joe, but he kept silent. He did his time and, you know, he, you know, nothing. Did Joe. 
that Joe had his name cleared and everything. So he kept his mouth shut, gets out of prison, and goes back to Joe for another job. Um, so Blonde is, you know, he, he wants to get back into the this, what he calls the real work. So they are kind of talking, you know, Eddie, you know, and Joe are kind of talking about this heist that they have blonde for this and it it cuts back to reality where uh like everyone's starting to beat up on the cop while it cuts to nice guy eddie and he's driving a car and he and he wants to meet all the guys at the warehouse and eddie is i think he's talking to the secretary for joe and like he's trying to explain like what's happening and everything and what he knows and what he doesn't know and and everything. And uh Eddie comes back to the warehouse, he's trying to figure out what happened and he states like, Oh, J- like my dad's really upset with you guys and uh White is trying to urge like Orange is dying right here, he needs a doctor right now and Eddie's still pissed at all of them and He's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to get him a doctor. Like, he'll be fine and everything. There's nothing to worry about. And Eddie instructs uh, White and Pink to go move the cars that are outside since he states that it looks like a, a parking lot out there where Blonde stays with the cop and Orange and Joe is still on his way. And he, he also instructs Pink to go find out where the diamonds and stuff are. That way they can bring it back to the warehouse where Joe can see like the job is actually done in some way. And now we have the, the controversial moment. Just before we get to that, like I love some of, um, uh, lines during this scene where he's like you know we have to move the cars because it looks like sam's used auto lot outside like because like all these cars outside you know joe is going to be pissed when he comes and you know sees us away so you know i I love some scenes but to the most famous scene where uh, stuck in the middle with you playing uh, a famous song from um, Jerry Rafferty. Uh, so, yeah, so basically Bond ties this uh, cop up and, you know, I know nothing if you want, but I can't wait because I know nothing. So he's convincing, but like the characters kind of start thinking blonde you know just has a moment during this during this whole you know um during the whole uh heist and everything so they think he's just kind of having a moment but you know they don't recognize the full psychopathy that this guy is you know harnessing so he ties this cop up and while he's playing the music you know he he begins you know kind of threatening him and you pointing gun at him and then he bounds him up with tape and comes excuse me get the uh blade and cuts off marvin nash's ear yep and it really looks real in all reality but 
it's not. It, that's just how the effects and stuff were. And Mr. Blonde goes back to his car and he gets a, da- a gas tank. And <laughs> he starts... And in- yeah, he, he starts pouring the little jerry can all over him. And the, the gasoline is like starting to really burn like his open wound from his from his ear and he's like okay okay i'll talk i'll talk i'll tell you everything that you want to know but uh whenever uh blonde is like you know what screw this i'm gonna like light the fire orange reveals himself and he shoots blonde like a a bunch of times to the point where he's dead and Uh orange and and, and Orange reveals to the, the cop, like, hey, don't worry. Everything's going to be all right. I'm an undercover cop. And Marvin Nash is like, I know your name is like uh, Freddy or something. And I'm like, yeah. And uh, Orange states, like, the cops are waiting outside until Joe gets there. And Orange is upset because he's bleeding on the floor and... Marvin's like, what are you waiting for? Like, I'm, I'm, they better show up real fast because I'm already a disfigured freak now because of this psychopath. And Orange is like, oh, screw you. I got shot in the gut and I'm, and I'm dying right now. I'm going to be dead eventually from all this blood loss. And it flashes back to Orange meeting up with his partner in a diner talking about how he got a meeting with Joe and his partner's like, okay, you really got to do the prep work throughout this. And you really have to like sell your character. So we're going to give you like a story script that's about four pages long. And you have to memorize this story with every detail. And you have to really emphasize your details because that really sells the story. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yeah. And um, he compares like... Uh, being an undercover cop to being Marlon Brando, where, you know, his acting has to be so on point, so natural. So he goes through this story and as we start seeing um, kind of backstory. You know, he lives in this little apartment and, you know, he's just this kind of fresh cop that is going to, you know, go on the dangerous men. So he acts out this scene of, you know, this kind of marijuana drug deal and, um, you know, in, you know, this run in with the cops in this uh, train station bathroom. It's told like through this flashback scene, like, like the slow motion, you know, the like the, the you know, when um, the, uh, pushes the uh, uh, hand dryer and like it, it's just this loud sound and it's just this, you know, all daring it and like i just love that like because it just adds that suspense of that story like you feel like it it actually happened but it's you know actually just orange telling this win over um joe and he that he is Um, and you know, we, we get this scene of you know, Mr. White, you know, kind of really taking a kind of caring role for uh, Mr. Orange, you know, during these scenes, you know, and we really see the origins of this, you know, camaraderie during these scenes. And we have 
Eddie, who arrives at Orange's apartment building, and he has white and pink in the car with him. And Orange looks at himself in the mirror, and he, like, kind of pumps himself up, like, you can do this. Like, they don't know, like, who you really are. They 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 don't know the fu- the future and everything. So we have all, all of them in the car, and Pink is talking about like the difference between uh, white and black woman in a sense, and it kind of gets a little racist from here. And now we have every, and this is one of my favorite, another favorite scenes throughout this movie we have joe having a meeting with everyone and he specifies like you can't talk about your past you can't mention your real names the only things that you should talk about are the job so he gives everyone's everyone the colors there's mr white there's mr blue there's mr brown there's mr blonde there's mr orange and there's mr pink and Mr. Pink is wondering why he he got that color and they have a little bit of a dispute over their colors and uh, and then it cuts to Joe he's kind of like he's losing his voice because he's trying to like gather everyone together and like go over the plan one more time and then it cuts to white and orange who go over the plan outside of the we're sitting in the car like across the street outside of like the bank building and they go over the plan they go over like some of the details behind it and it cuts to the day of the job and we see mr brown crashing the car that they're driving and he has he's bleeding from his head and he's like am, am i blind like am i blind and and Orange is like, no, there's just blood in your eyes. And after this, like, they kind of run into another car and it's like he just keeps like trying to drive into it and he just kind of slouches over. I never could find out what happened to him, like if he got shot or if like he just got a head injury or what. But he just kind of so they Mr. White and Mr. Orange abandon him and they like kind of try to find another car. Um, and this is where we kind of start piecing things together. So Orange and White find this other car. Orange tries to basically take it, Grand Theft Auto, again. And he goes over with the gun held in this lady who is driving, pulls out a little revolver and shoots him right in the stomach. He falls over and shoots the lady uh, and she dies. And this is really where the irony starts because, like, this is where, you know, this undercover cop kills uh, an innocent woman. You know, no, not an innocent woman, but, like, he, he kills a civilian. Yeah, and that civilian was also pregnant at the time, too. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have this, yeah, we have this scene um, and... This is where, you know, we kind of piece together the beginning of this movie. You know, the the first, you know, real scene where, you know, Mr. Orange is dying in the back of this car. So we see what happens to him. And um, so we get to, we kind of jump back to the um, warehouse here. Yeah, and we have everyone coming back in. 
Eddie looks at Blonde's dead body on the floor and white and pink. White is by Orange, who's kind of comforting him in a sense. And Orange kind of goes over like, oh, Blonde went crazy. He cut off uh, the cop's ear and he was going to light him on fire and kill both of us and take the money. And Eddie's like, no, I can't believe that. That this this guy didn't rat us out from our previous job. He he stood by in prison, and now all of a sudden he has a change in mind and he wants to take the diamonds and kill all of us. And nice, no, I nice guy. Like, he just comes in and shoots this cop. Like after all this cop has been through, like he just shoots him. Yeah, and, and he's like, no, I don't believe you for one minute right now. And he's like, so is that what really happened? And Orange is like bleeding on the floor. He's like, I swear, I swear on my, <laughs> on the soul of my mother that that's what happened. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and Joe arrived and, and he's like, oh, that's not what happened at all. This guy's a cop. And White's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This guy ain't a cop. I know he's not a cop. And Joe's like, Oh, don't worry. I know he's a cop. It's from my, it's it's instinct with my gut. And White's like, that's all you have. That's all the proof that you have. And a little bit before this too, he states that uh, Blue is dead because throughout this whole film, they don't know what happened to Blue. <laughs> Blue, Blue, the guy that played Blue is really interesting. I think his name was Edward Bunker. He yep. actually was. He had a history of crime, like early in his life, where he was like a hardened criminal, and he was in, you know, in and out of prisons, and he became a screenwriter, like after a writer afterwards, and like he became an actor too, and yeah, so this is like the whole. He didn't really have any scenes, but. Quentin Tarantino actually added the first scene, like the kind of overture scene of them in the diner, just so Mr. Blue could have some lines. Yeah, Mr. Blue really had like the most lines during the the diner scene. And even though he was more of like a side character, just like Quentin Tarantino and like Mr. Brown, like they they had some kind of memorable scenes too, like even Mr. Brown talking about Madonna or like crashing the car. And then Mr. Blue talking about like the whole tipping thing whenever Mr. Pink was talking about it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So we have this, like this, this kind of character that he's been missing the whole movie. We haven't seen him and he is presumed dead. So Joe and Joe, Eddie and Mr. White are, you know, continually, argument of like it did is this mr orange possibly the the rat of this group and uh white pulls a gun on joe and joe pulls his gun out and eddie pulls his gun out and points it at at white and eddie's like oh you better get you better get that (laughs) that gun away from my father right now or so help me i will shoot you and he always calls him daddy like he always calls him daddy like you take that gun off my daddy and of course back then that means in a different context but right now like you don't really like that's that's kind of uncomfortable at this point but yeah so they become involved in this like mexican standoff um and there is so much analysis of this scene who fires first who you know fires at the you know who fires second so Joe shoots Orange in the arm, and White shoots Joe in the face. And uh, 
Eddie twice in the chest. And pink pink hides underneath like the ramp that weren't that orange is on. Yeah. And pink kind of makes his little getaway. Which, <laughs> this is one point in the movie that kind of doesn't make sense because the cops are like right outside. They don't see pink walking away with the diamonds at any point. Exactly. We hear in the background like him, like he he kind of sputters out, which is interesting because like he could possibly be the professional killer. He could possibly be the like the most professional of them all because he succeeds in getting away. So he runs out, um, tries to start his call a car, a few like false starts, and then he finally starts it. Uh, wheels squeal and he drives away. And white is like really hurt at this point he's almost on the same level of orange's pain right now and he's like he's dragging himself to get to orange and orange is like and he reveals like white's real name which is larry Mm. and and he's like i'm sorry larry i'm a cop like i don't know what to tell you And, and, and and white cries and he's like really upset with him at this point and he points the one that actually trusted him throughout yeah. like he was the father figure he was constantly looking out for orange constantly making sure that he was okay and you know making sure you know they were making the right ethical and compassionate decision to keep the, to try to keep this guy alive and or get him help and here you know mr orange tells him that he's a cop and just the acting and it's just so excruciating because it's like he found out like this secret you know that that this is the 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 nail that broke everything, and White points the gun at Orange's cheek, and the camera zooms in on White. We don't see Orange anymore, and in the background we hear the cops move in, and they're like threatening him, like "Don't you shoot him, or else we're gonna shoot. It's all gonna be okay." And then we see White kind of off screen shoot Orange, and the cops kill white with all these gunshots in the background and it just cuts to black and then the credits roll the lime and the coconut and drink them all all please don't copyright us please don't get us for copyright infringement um yeah so (laughs) that's the end of reservoir dogs um and there are so many like emotions that you feel because it's like this movie, like it kind of started off like slow, but it, it feels like you're going when this movie ends. It's like you just finally sit back and it's like, holy hell, what did I just watch? And with such a low budget too, like one point two million dollars went in this movie and you don't need a high budget movie to make a movie like this all you need to do is have a strong script like strong story storytelling in general and like have a good layout on what your movie should be yeah and yeah exactly and and, like that's like the quentin tarantino method you know it kind of like with robert rodriguez and eli roth and you know all these you know kind of new film independent filmmakers who were you know making movies on these shoestring budgets and you know that proved the test of time you know this is probably one of the greatest 
crime movies of all time. But yeah, so I always thought this this last scene was interesting because there's so much like analysis of, you know, the music in this movie, you know, and how the music is from the 70s and how it's, you know, more mood. It's not really meaning. But a lot of people say that the last song which is coconut by harry nielsen doesn't really have like a lot of meaning but if you remember joe says you know when this heist works out we're all going to be in hawaii i'm taking you guys to hawaii where we can all relax like so i think that's where that comes in but it's just this just this movie is so well executed so well done so memorable performances so memorable scenes like from start to finish, it, it really just hooks you in. Yeah, exactly. So Kaitel, like, interestingly enough, like we didn't mention this before, but Kaitel really helped to finance this movie. So Quentin, I watched an interview with Quentin Tarantino, and he was like, you know, how did um, the interviewer ask him how Kaitel got involved? So because Kaitel had been a very prolific actor at that time, but was kind of going through a dry spell in his career. He had been working consistently with Martin Scorsese throughout the 70s. And, you know, of course, he was working with he did a little bit with Ridley Scott and, you know, was doing a lot of different movies uh, throughout the 80s. But, you know, really was hitting a dry spot where he was in, you know, a few B movies of the early 80s. But he apparently knew like Quentin Tarantino knew Lawrence Bender who helped to, who was Tarantino's friend and who helped, you know, produce this movie. So Bender knew somebody who knew Kaitel and uh, from an acting class or an acting studio. So that's how they kind of got him in, you know, in, Quentin Tarantino, of course, was he long admired Keitel for, you know, one of his favorite movies is Scorsese's Taxi Driver, who Keitel plays, you know, famously, you know, a pimp in that movie, you know. And so Keitel, I guess, like got back to him and like he left a voicemail on um, Tarantino's uh, home phone at the time and was like, you know, hello, this is Harvey Keitel. You know, I read this screenplay and I'm very interested. So it's just like, it's so interesting how it, it fell into the hands of somebody that successful. And that's really what kind of reamped Keitel's career at that time too. I'm really glad about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like, yeah, exactly. Cause Keitel, like he was, you know, in and out of, you know, movies, he had been acting in a lot at that time. But like I said, he was been he had been doing B, a lot of B movies. And I think, you know, most recently he had done uh, Last Temptation of Christ with Martin Scorsese, of course, with Willem Dafoe playing Jesus. Um, and he, uh, you know, it, it plays a really good role in that. But like he had, you know, not as prolific as he was in the 70s where he was doing, you know, a lot of different movies. So I think at that time he was also doing Bad Lieutenant with Abel Ferreira, which is, you know, a bit of a controversial movie. But yeah, so that was another movie that really helped spark his career back into place, too. He definitely did a good job throughout this movie. I mean he was more of the shining light throughout this movie because I mean, obviously orange was the undercover cop, but he still kind of did his own thing in a sense. Like Mr. White had probably the most morality throughout this movie than any other character, but it's interesting. Exactly. Like he is, you know, such this compassionate father figure to, 
uh, Mr. Orange, but Mr. Orange, and I love this scene, like during, during where they're trying to steal the car and like after um, Mr. Uh, Brown dies and everything, like the, these cops pull in and are trying to, you know, close in on uh, Mr. Orange and Mr. White and Mr. Orange, not Mr. Uh, Mr. White just fires on them. Like Harvey Keitel's character just fires on them point blank and kills these two cops. So it's like in it, the camera kind of pans over to Mr. Orange, who's like it's like his first realization that this guy is a hardened criminal. Like this guy, you know, has been compassionate, but this guy will kill cops at a moment's notice, too. Yeah. And another like you mentioned before, you didn't know how Mr. Brown died. I think it. I think Mr. White said th- towards the beginning of the movie that, that he got shot in the head. Okay, that makes sense then. Well, I, I don't know because if he got shot in the head, how did he have enough time to kind of collect himself through his mind? Like, okay, I'm still driving a car and it, I'm still producing words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's definitely one of the weirder deaths in this movie that's kind of unexplained because um, the, the camera just goes back like it, he's just kind of like hunched back in this car with his head like hunched back. Um, so, yeah, but so we have like Kaitel's character, Mr. White, is just such a fascinating character. There's a really good video that I watched on YouTube to prepare for this. It's uh, analyzing evil and it's reservoir dogs. And it goes through like just all the ethics of this movie and like just the, the theme of morality within this movie and how, you know, like I said, Kaitel's character is so, you know, deeply compassionate and, you know, but he, you can tell that he has this past, you know, of, of sorts, but he's been taking care of orange who has been down this whole movie. And, you know, we get this, you know, scene where Kaitel just, point blank shoots these cops and it's like you know like it's not only like the uh character uh mr um orange is recognizing this you know that he's capable of this but like the audience is too like we really are like wow like this is what this guy can do too you know and little and with his little backstory like whenever he was talking with joe like he even wanted to kind of retire in a sense because he was done with his Alabama crew and he kind of felt like time was catching up with him. So at that point, he really wanted to retire and kind of let himself go because obviously he was one of the older ones of the group that was more experienced and he kind of felt like his time was up in a sense because, um, I mean, if you can get away with as much as you did, obviously karma is going to come along the way and eventually snuff you out. And obviously crime doesn't pay and it will catch up with you in the end. But I mean, I guess Joe was just too convincing at that point where it's like you have one more job in you and this one will probably set you for life. And yeah, but it ends up being the one that kills him. Yeah. I mean... In the end, no one really knows the future, but for him, I mean, maybe he he could have known more along the lines, like, this could be my last heist, like, I might as well, like, go down with the ship in a sense. 
And yeah, exactly. And he kind of does. But like Joe is throughout the movie, like every time he's explaining it, he's talking about how successful it's going to be and how easy it's going to be and just how it turns because of, you know, we kind of get that. We kind of go back to, you know, what happened during this heist and how blonde is really the one that starts taking out civilians. And the only reason why he does that was because of the alarms and he feels like there could have been less casualties if uh, the alarm wasn't pulled, but obviously events happened and obviously he felt like he knew, he, he knew the best thing to do at that moment. But I don't understand why he had to kill the the 20 year old girl. <laughs> and keep in mind that the, heist is never shown it's a heist movie without the heist actually being shown we just see the 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 pre-heist and then we see the post-heist i was thinking about this the other day this has to be one of the, this probably has to be the best heist movie that doesn't involve the heist <laughs> exactly yeah and i i love that like that's so cool that you can do that and like all they do is just talk about it and that this is this is what we mean like the whole movie is just dialogue driven like if you miss the dialogue you're going to miss a lot of the details throughout this movie yeah exactly and i think that that's what tarantino was trying to prove like if you miss one detail throughout this movie you're going to be confused and you're going to be kind of angry at yourself because you felt like you missed this opportunity to catch a detail and now you're at this point in the story where you're kind of confused kind of flustered and there's no kind of rewinding it if you're seeing this in a, in a theaters yeah but if, i mean obviously if you have it for physical media then obviously we can re- rewind it and kind of backtrack a little bit on what you missed but i mean Are- I don't know why that just made me think of this. I, I assume you have this on physical media, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I remember, like, and I don't know if you remember this, but, like, because I'm a little older than you, but, like, when I first saw this movie, like, it was being made, like, on DVD, but it would, like, come, like, each one was, like, Mr. Blue edition or Mr. White edition, and, like, the d- disc, like, were, like, of that like it was a white disc or a yellow disc like it just depended on which one you got i think the cover art for the one what the, the one that i have it has pink white blonde and orange on the cover and <laughs> it it has like each of their colors in the background and it has it obviously has their characters too yeah, exactly. And I remember, like, I had this on, like, a three-disc thing. It came with Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, too. Um, so, yeah, that that's, yeah, that, I think that's the first time I watched this, too, was with that disc. But, yeah, so I didn't, I actually just rented this movie, but I wish I had this on physical media. I wish I had all Tarantino's movies on physical media. Um, but, yeah, that's just, I don't know what made me think of that. I have a good majority of at least the ones that I have seen on, on physical media. Obviously, I don't have the ones that I haven't seen, but I mean, th- this really makes me... Obviously, like whenever we do these reviews, each time that we see a movie, we want to see more of the the works from the, the past 
that these directors have done. Like, obviously, if you do Spirited Away, you're going to want to see more Studio Ghibli movies. And if you see Bo's Afraid, you're obviously going to see more Ari Aster. Or if you see Uncut Gems, obviously more of the Safety Brothers movies. Or Poor Things, you're going to see more of your ghost's movies. Exactly, yeah. So that's, and like I said, I've seen like a major, uh, a good bit of Tarantino's movies. But like, I just want to watch more now. Like, I just was, because I want to watch, I want to revisit Inglorious Bastards too. Like, now that I'm older and like watching these movies and understand the themes a bit more, like... I just feel like they're so much more enjoyable now than they were back then. Cause back then I was just watching them for the gore and the violence and, you know, kind of the storyline too. But like now I'm actually watching it for the storyline and the themes and yeah, the gore is pretty cool too. But yeah. Now compared to other Quentin Tarantino movies, obviously he ramped up his violence aspect going on, but I, I honestly think that Reservoir Dogs kind of, is more of like the calming aspect in a sense. Whereas you go on with like Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards and Django oh. and Hateful Eight, like the violence only ramps it up from there. Like there, there's a lot more than <laughs> looking like Kill Bill specifically. Like Kill Bill Volume One, like they needed the, the like one of the final scenes. Like, and this is a famous Tarantino story that I'm sure like some of our viewers have heard before but like they needed to film they needed to put like a layer of black and white over like the one of the scenes because if not it was going to get an nc-17 rating and and the the scene that that really kind of did the selling point for quentin tarantino and his violence aspect is back in inglorious bastards when there's a scene of the the villain choking the life out of a woman and what others may think that it's actually fake he's actually choking out the woman here <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so like and that's like tarantino and violence go together like you know tarantino and violence you know like it's just something that is so commonplace for his movies but that's kind of why you watch his movies and that's like the whole controversy behind his movies is like it, it really is celebratory of violence but like it, i feel like it just really pays homage to what tarantino grew up with and what tarantino was watching when he was younger and this makes me really curious on how he's gonna end his uh directorial career exactly because once upon a time in hollywood isn't isn't violent like there's like a few scenes in it like of course like the manson scenes but like it's not it's probably his tamest work yeah it, it's not as violent compared to his other ones so um yeah i'm really looking forward to seeing if you know he kind of goes off the rails with this one i doubt he will i uh, he'll probably want to make a tamer movie but like yeah i i would say his worst is probably in terms of violence is probably kill bill yeah, pr probably. Like I said, I, I'll dip my toes back into it and see how graphic it, it is. Because the only scene that I can remember is the is the the whole wedding scene and how that went down. Uh, I I love. Yeah, I really want to watch Kill Bill because I love samurai movies. I really love sword movies, and yeah. 
Kill Bill is definitely something that, yeah, I love. You know, Shogun Assassin and Lone Wolf and Cub. Like, I just, yeah, love those movies. But anyway, so uh, Reservoir Dogs was, you know, takes a lot, as as we mentioned before. Like, it takes a lot from other movies. Um, one in particular was Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Um, so that was something that definitely was a big inspiration. So if you want to check that out, please do. I have seen it. It's a solid movie. Of course, Stanley Kubrick being the famous movie director that he is the quintessential filmmaker that he is um one of his first movies is the killing and you know tarantino definitely took takes a lot from that with you know the ripoff and all the you know the how the heist gone wrong type of movie um so another theme that you know is kind of the color theme was taken from the original taking of pelham one two three um another really good 70s action thriller uh really really good movie uh kind of in the same vein of you know really dark comedy with mixed with you know intense action and you know in a thriller so um and of course as i mentioned before uh sergio corbucci's django the original django that came out in 1966 the cop torturing scene um comes from that too so and of course um ringo lamb's uh city on fire which we kind of mentioned before which was the um i believe the taiwanese movie that came out oh from hong kong yeah yeah um trying to think of what else you know is mentioned because that is what i love about tarantino movies which you know this is my last thing about what i want to say about that but like just finding all the references and kind of going back and finding because that's what i love about tarantino it's like a puzzle piece almost of finding his influences within these movies yeah like each one of these things were at least driven out by another film or another source of of what kind and then like you said once you put all the pieces together you have this movie that tarantino presents to you exactly and when this movie came out jacob i know that you probably know this but like when this movie came out it was met with a lot of mixed reaction it was either this is a masterpiece or this thing is crap yeah obviously i mean back then people had different opinions about this movie but leading towards more in current today obviously this movie can be considered as one of quentin tarantino's masterpieces even though this is his first work but i mean looking at the box office on what this movie made it made double on what the the budget was but compared to what you would see in a box office box office uh score today this movie would have absolutely bombed <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and uh like compared to movies today like i mean it made 2.9 million dollars in the box office obviously that's not gonna make even if like the budget was more and this movie still had like the same box office score like it would have been a certified bomb in the box office but through critics eyes it would have been a certified masterpiece exactly yeah and some of you know the directors that tarantino loved um watched this movie and they hated it wes craven of nightmare on elm street fame scream fame um 
last original last house on the left hills have eyes fame um he uh actually walked out of this movie before it was finished and so yeah imagine like in rick baker of you know the special makeup effects guy of you know an American werewolf in London was, you know, really disgusted by this movie when it came out, you know, ironically. So, you know, we have so many people that were, you know, Tarantino looked up to that didn't like this vision. I mean, obviously people are going to have their different opinions about this movie, but I think everyone could agree on a whole, as far as like today's standards, like this is a very good movie. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It is. It's it's a good movie. And like for a majority of the time when I was watching this earlier, I was smiling because it's like, oh, my gosh, like this movie is just it's something that is so as we do on this channel, something that is so unique. Like. Quentin Tarantino wouldn't have his continued career without like this first project, like. Even if, if even if this was a flop, like if this was like a really bad movie, obviously his career wouldn't be as it is today. But you're starting out with one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, that's, that's really hard to do for a director's first movie. Exactly. Yeah, it's like Citizen Kane and, you know, those types of you know filmmakers are just something you know with um you know i know this wasn't his first movie but akira kurosawa was rashomon like you know it's up there with you know these early early efforts of first filmmakers that really put them on the map i mean he's definitely on the map on, on one of the greatest directors he is exactly yeah so and you know in that interview he was like you know maybe viewers will watch this you know five years down the line and here we are nearly 30 years later still talking about this movie and analyzing this movie and enjoying this movie oh yeah people are still analyzing this movie even us we're, we're analyzing this movie right now exactly yeah so so yeah, that is that all that we want to talk about. I mean, we could. There's so much trivia behind this movie, um, you know. Of you know, so many unique stories of them, you know, having to provide um, their own costumes and you know, own you know, kind of effects because the budget was so low. But like, it's just really you know, an essence of the magic of what creativity and you know, limited resources, but using your resources just right. And, you know, kind of pulling off a movie of this caliber. I can't really think on any other detail that we kind of miss. I think we basically covered everything, at least yeah. on my end. I mean, I I had a lot of analysis throughout this movie, more than usual. And I think we covered everything. Good. Yeah, I, I think we did, too. So, um, yeah, if you have any favorite trivia or anything uh listeners please feel free to share with us we love stuff like that so yeah all right now before we leave we we, we gotta at least give our scores and put on the tier list so what would you give it a 10 i uh, would give I, no, I would give it a 10 as well no question i was thinking about that earlier like i I really, really, I like this movie better than Uncut Gems. Like, I just feel like it's more of a solid movie, um, a solid crime movie. And yeah, I forgot to even mention that, you know, both weeks we were talking about crime movies involving Diamond Heist. Yeah. But yeah. 
so yeah but i would i would say that i like this movie just a bit better but yeah i would give this a solid 10 out of 10 okay i'm looking at the tier list right now and how tier list would generally work like if you're looking at at the tier list like from the left standpoint you're at like, like number one and from like the right you have like the bottom tiered now would you think that this movie is better than Bo's afraid <sighs> i know i'm putting you on the spot oh, i enjoy watching this movie more than Bo is afraid is it a better piece of filmmaking i don't know because I think it's hard to compare because Ari Aster, of course, that's his third movie and Tarantino, this is his first movie. And, you know, they're just so, I think they're so hard to compare, but I, I would say I enjoy watching Reservoir Dogs more than I enjoy watching Bo is Afraid. Okay. Now what about compared to Poor Things? Oh yes. Yes. I would say I like Reservoir Dogs better than Poor Things. Okay. So, so this would basically be our, are number one rated <laughs> rated out of the tier list uh yeah i would say yeah i would say that this is definitely a uh one of the strongest movies we had watched i fully agree. i mean on my list on like movies that i would like rate out of like a 10 out of 10 obviously this is placed at number 15. I have poor things rated at number 21, and then right below at 22 is Bo's Afraid. So I would agree with this. And um, like, I, I like what's what's not to love about this movie besides the whole uh, violence aspect? Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, it, it's just something that's it's perfect it's you know i just really enjoy this movie so a lot of fun i had a lot of fun watching it and now i want to watch more tarantino movies oh yeah definitely so yeah and another fun thing that i wanted to share was i actually watched another ruggiero deodato movie oh, oh oh what, what movie uh, did you watch uh, I really wanted to share. So I have, uh, it's a streaming service called Arrow Video, and it is, um, Arrow does like, uh, kind of like B-movie reissues and like a lot of 80s movies reissues, but that have kind of been forgotten about or like discontinued on physical media. But anyway, like it has a lot of different movies on there, like a lot of different samurai movies. And um yeah. Anyway, so I watched, I have always wanted to watch this movie, House at the Edge of the Park. And it is a 1980 movie uh, starring David Hess, who uh, I hate seeing his face. Like, it, <laughs> he was in the original Last House on the Left, and he plays like one role, and that's of this like slimy, like, high, uh, slimy guy who kind of comes in and you know, takes advantage of women and, you know, he's just a really, really bad guy that, you know, rapes women and does all this, you know, terrible stuff and holds them against their will. Definitely a movie bad guy. So it's kind of a ripoff of Last House on the Left. It was Deodato's follow-up to um, Cannibal Holocaust. It was a stinker. It sucked. It was so terrible. It was an hour and a half and it, it just... 
was so bad. Like I, I, I've been wanting to watch this movie since I want to say uh, 2012. Um, and I, it, it's so hard to find on physical media. So I watched it on Arrow Video. I skipped pretty much half of it. It was just the acting was so bad. Um, wow. Yeah, it, the acting was so bad. It, I love cheesy movies, Jacob. You know I love cheesy movies and, you know, B-movies. It just was terrible. It was so bad. Like, it just, the the dubbing was terrible. The acting was terrible. The, the twist, everybody was talking about this twist at the end. It sucked. It was, it, no. <laughs> I just wanted to share that, that, you know, that there are things worse than Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, yeah, definitely. There are definitely worse movies compared to Cannibal Holocaust. Like I mentioned before, I put it like at a 5.5 and I placed it like right in the middle. Like, obviously, it has its quirks and everything. But one of the questions I have for you is, did it come out before or after Cannibal Holocaust? It came, I believe it came out like... 1981 and of course uh, cannibal holocaust came out in 1980 so it was day Adato's follow-up to this to the the movie and it has a completely different atmosphere like it's just so okay trigger warning but like every other scene someone is getting raped oh 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 okay exactly yeah That's... wow Yes, exactly. And I don't mean to be blunt, but if, yeah, don't, uh, just a trigger warning. It, it's not, it, it's like, it's not good. It's it's a stinker, you know, and I ha- I'm very open-minded when it comes to movies. I love pointing out things that are really good about movies, but I could find nothing good about this movie. So, yeah, just wanted to throw that in there. I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I never, I never thought I, I could hear you say that a, a movie is like downright bad. I mean, I, I know one movie that we both saw that we found downright bad, and I, wow, <laughs> what is that? Oh, is that um um the Meg two? Yep. <laughs> oh yeah, Meg. <laughs> it's on Netflix, I think. It is. I believe it's on Netflix. Well, I'm saying far away from that then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but yeah, I just wanted to share that I did see another um, Deodato movie and it had all the uh, unsimulated sex in it. And uh, yeah, it just was, it was a stinker. <laughs> wow. Well, <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you shared that. <laughs> Just I had to, you know, because Deodato, you know, we we definitely talked a lot about him in our, of course, our Cannibal Holocaust episode. So I wanted to, you know, share that I had seen another movie by him and just stick to Cannibal Holocaust. I mean, if you wanted to give it a chance, I mean, I don't blame you. Obviously, if you see a movie, you're gonna have some hope for it but (laughs) if it comes out to be a stinker i I don't know what to say after that (laughs) yeah it's a home invasion movie yeah it just yeah all right (laughs) that's all i say all right so since we have reservoir dogs sitting at s tier this is our uh number one movie at the moment so 
next episode, we're still kind of in the crime aspect, a little bit towards more of like the justice side of things. Mm, yes, and we have a classic for you next week. I am really excited for this movie because I've only seen this movie a handful of times. And when I have seen it, it blew me away with just the discussions. And it has been parodied a lot of times. I can think of one uh, Family Guy episode that does an amazing parody of this. But uh, yeah, so I'm really, really excited for this movie. It is a classic black and white 50s movie, but that is still holds up today in its power and how riveting it is. It's kind of funny that you mentioned Family Guy because Family Guy with that episode kind of made me want to watch this movie. And I'm glad it kind of <laughs> it introduced me to it. You had never heard of this movie before? I have, but I like put it at like a pedestal in a sense. Yeah. And, and then whenever I started like looking more into it, I'm like, you know what? I got to give it a chance. And I'm really glad I did. Well, kind of similarly to Scorsese, the director, like I went down a rabbit hole of his movies and I love, love, love his movies. Similar like New York themed film, 70s, you know, crime dramas, crime movies. Anyway, I am really looking forward to next week because we have a treat for you. So, yes. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. So we have uh, we have been uh, again. Uh, really ramping up with the followers. So we really appreciate each and every one of you. We appreciate everything that you do and the unconditional support that we get from you. So yes, please. And thank you. We really appreciate you. Also, I, I would like to give this moment right now. Um, we had a, a birthday last weekend. <laughs> oh, Jacob. From, from our very special co-host nicholas Shawley. so if all of you can give give him your birthday wishes that would be very much appreciated oh uh, jacob i had a wonderful wonderful birthday so yes i thank you um so yeah pretty much today i mean it's been a week since my birthday but today i was off and i just watched movies so yeah i watched reservoir dogs that that uh stinker um last uh house on the edge of the park and i watched another one that i really liked uh, it was 1980s uh, Altered States. I loved that movie. So good. Huh. Uh, yeah, it, just, it, it's right up my alley. It's a, about uh, John Lilly, uh, kind of loosely based on the life of John Lilly, who created the first isolation tank and the first flotation tank and did a lot of experimentation with dolphins. But amazing, amazing movie starring William Hurt. Uh, definitely a, a little dated. Uh, just, but the effects are really, really cool, and I would suggest it. It's not for everybody, but yeah, those are the three I watched today. And I haven't, I don't watch movies that often, ironically, but today I was just feeling it. So yeah, thought I'd share. I feel the same way. Like I'm not as invested in in like watching movies because, granted, I have seen like over like 850 of them. But if you're really like if you're really in the mood for watching a movie and you're going down that rabbit hole, like, oh, I got to see another one and another one, like, it really puts you in that train of mind of, like, wow, like, I I can't believe on what I was missing. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you see a powerful movie, you know that feeling. And, yeah, I definitely felt that earlier with Reservoir Dogs. Oh yeah, definitely. I'm I'm glad that we I'm glad that we decided to to do this. 
So yeah, everybody, thank you again for listening. And again, we apologize for any technical difficulties during this uh, during this episode. We were having some uh, delays for un- some unknown reason, but it seemed like it kind of worked itself out. So we appreciate you if you're still here, still listening. So thank you again for your patience and support. Oh yeah, we we thank everyone who's been listening. And if you want to follow us, you can follow us on our Instagram at the Box Office Bears Movie Podcast. Or you can email us at the box office bears movie podcast at yahoo.com. Yes, please continue to send recommendations and feedback and uh, your opinions on the movies we watch and your opinion on how we're doing. So if you're doing some, if we're doing something that is annoying or doing something that you don't like or would like to see more of, maybe let us know. Yeah, all feedback is welcomed. Exactly, yes. So we appreciate you, and yeah, thank you again. All right, everyone, have a good night. Put the lime in the coconut and drink them all. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye.